Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Remy Martin. Coming up, we'll be speaking with Bristol Bears head coach Pat Lamb to discuss how he's finding coaching in the Premiership and Reggie Corrigan will take us through the Pro 14 fixtures. First, I'm joined this week by the World Cup winner, Maggie Alfonsi. Hello, Maggie, how are you? I'm very well, actually. Really good, yeah. That's excellent. Well, look, let's go through the Premiership. Leicester, narrow victory, 1915 to sale. George Ford seems to have come to the rescue. Do you think he's getting a bit of a hard time, given that Danny Cipriani has been very much in the headlines recently? I think he is. You know, uh, I'm a George Ford fan. He, he He's a clinical executor you know he sets up key players like Johnny May I think the challenge you have with um, Cipriani is that he is a media attraction you know he really does bring in the interest and obviously what's happened recently all the talk's been about him and I think what's great about Ford is that he just plays his game you know he just cracks on with it and he's had some good rugby and that was a good win against Sale. Well Sale promised quite a lot pre-season they look to have made one or two well high profile signings and good signings, but they are obviously missing Fafter Clerk, who has been playing, well, as we know he can for South Africa, and has actually been one of the bright lights in South Africa's revival. How much better will they be when he gets back? I think it'll be absolutely brilliant. Um, we see what he does, um, or what he has done previously with other teams, and what he does with South Africa, he almost... He attacks that ruck area, he attacks the fringes, he keeps teams honest. And I think that's what almost Sal are missing, that, that extra bit of edge, that almost a little bit of variety in the way they attack. I mean, they kept obviously pretty close to, to Leicester, but you almost feel, feel that's what's their missing ingredient at the moment. One of the things that I've noticed, especially with South Africa, is Fafta Klerk is very good at spotting opportunities down the narrow side. Any sort of weakness, he's in there. And because he's a constant threat, Running-wise, he leaves space for other people. Yeah, I think one of the things he does is that he attracts people. So like you just said, so what happens is as he picks and goes, he sucks in opposition defence, and as a result of that, he leaves all these spaces out wide so, so his key players can attack the wide channels. But I think that's why he's so good, because you're not quite sure what he's going to do. It's very unpredictable the way he plays. Um, you know, He will take it on or he will set it up for opportunities out wide. Well, the Saracens win against Bath 50 points to 27. 13 changes for Bath, eight tries for Saracens. Bath have announced that Stuart Hooper will be taking over from Todd Blackadder in 2020. Now, I have a problem with this. I don't think you should be allowed to make 13 changes. I don't care 
what priorities you have because it makes a farce of the league and it puts out of the window. When people talk about there being dead rubbers if you have a cessation of promotion and relegation, this is effectively the same. I, I agree with you. I mean, look, people are paying for tickets as well to come and watch their side play well. To see that they've made 13 changes against, you know, obviously one of the best sides in the Premiership at the moment, it's quite a frustrating thing as a fan to, to be able to think that you're supporting your team and they're not performing very well. Bath are going through quite a lot of changes at the moment and I guess they're priority, well, their next game is um, Exeter and they're, and they're thinking about obviously performing against them, but they potentially could have still had a, had, a, had a go at Saracens if they had fielded a stronger side. But look, they're going through a process of change. They've been going through this for years. They've had a huge investment for the amount of money they have had put into that club and given their history and where they've come from, it just simply is not what we expect or what I expect of Bath. No, I agree. I agree. And it's, it's a shame because it could have been a much better game, but Saras has absolutely dominated every facet of that game uh, yesterday and you just think, to, or Saturday, sorry, you just think to yourself... If Bath had put out a stronger side, they almost potentially would have would have tested Saracens. They wouldn't have beaten them, I don't think so, at all. But they still would have uh, produced a closer game. Well, let's move on to two sides who, let's face it, have a bit of a problem with consistency. Gloucester and Quinns, 25-37. Um, Quinns, if you look at their league position, it looks fairly healthy. If you look at their performances, they're probably above where they should be. But what does that say about Gloucester? Well, Gloucester, you know, you almost think to yourself that they potentially should be significantly higher. Look, they've got Cipriani, they've got Matt, Matt Abana, you know, Banahan, sorry. Gloucester is sort of side, you almost feel they'll produce their performances later on in the season as the season gets on when other teams start to you know, struggle, pick up injuries, international season starting to kick in as well. But yeah, you always think Gloucester are almost missing that, that winning performance. Well, I think they admitted that probably the advent of Cipriani there gave them a profile which they might not have deserved, given the squad they've got. But, I mean, I like Johan Ackerman, and not least because he's very honest. We simply said, we lost because we are not good enough in our skill execution decision-making. It's simply uh, the case. I mean, it's been such a long time since Gloucester had any degree of consistency that if you're stood there in the shed, you might have thought this season might be different, but it's not turning out to be. What do they need to try and get that? I guess, you know, it's, it's like anything. It's building consistency, winning your games. You get that momentum. You get that confidence. When you have big losses, especially one against Saracens, it almost knocks your confidence considering the fact that Gloucester are a side, when they're playing at home in particular, they have the, the home crowd behind them and they, they play on the front foot. But when they get that knock, knock against them, like we saw against Saracens in particular, it's almost hard for them to almost build that confidence again. Well, Paul Gustard, who is a defensive specialist, Said sometimes uh, we look vulnerable in defence, and that's indeed what Quinns have had over a number of years. However many points they've scored, they've conceded quite a lot. So they need that first of all to go better. Big news actually at Worcester, although they went down twenty-eight eleven to Exeter. Rob Baxter wasn't that impressed. He said it was the second half was the sloppiest of the season. Wasted thirty minutes of rugby. But the big news, I suppose, from Worcester's point of view, a brand new consortium has taken them over. Jed McCrory, the primary backer, Errol Pope, one of the other backers. But it's a, only a four-man consortium. But in this sense, it isn't promising the large amounts of investment that possibly they need. Interesting that the chairman, Bill Bolsover, saying, look, they've been messed around 
down the bottom of the league for years. We've got to change gear. But just a change of ownership isn't going to do that on its own. And I wonder where they will have to go to try and find that. Yeah, but one thing about Worcester, I have to say, at the start of the season, everyone was writing them off. They were the side that are going to finish at the bottom. They've pulled off some some interesting wins so far. Uh, you almost feel they're a side that potentially could be, well, like you said, the further investment was significantly better, but they're a side that are, are, are punching above their weight and they're going for it. You know, they're, they're choosing to write off all those uh, negative criticisms about them and actually showing that they've got potential. Well, I suppose they've got to do that. And indeed, the league, this league, looks to be as wide open as any more particularly down the bottom, because at the moment you're seeing Saracens and Exeter carrying on in their own suite and, you know, merry way. Uh, can you see anyone realistically challenging those two at the moment? No. Um, Saracens in particular, I mean, they're, they're absolutely on fire. Regardless of who's playing in their, you know, the starting 15, they've got players that pull off the bench who can make a big difference. And the, the way I think one of the things which I love about watching Saracens is the tempo. You know the way they play the game. They play it at pace, and their ability to maximise errors that opposition create. Uh, they can turn you know defence into attack really quickly. I think that's what's made them so so solid. And I, I think their consistency at the start of the season almost feels like they they will be continuing that on. And key players like Alex Goodenat are playing some great rugby. Well, let's talk to the Bristol Bears head coach, Pat Lamb. Really pleased to be able to speak to him. Narrow loss at home, 40 points to 45. Hello, Pat. Brian, Maggie, how are you doing? We're fine. Can I ask you, first of all, what are the differences between coaching, say, in the Premiership as distinct from the Championship and the Pro 14? Well, you know, I mean, everyone says this, but, you know, everyone can win any game. You can, you know, anyone can beat anyone, but certainly the... The premiership is relentless, and I think the you know the relegation factor, you know, really brings interest right right across. But you know, for us, you start with Bath at home, massive game. You get over that, and then you head off to Salisbury's away, and after that one, Gloucester away, and and then uh, Harlequin. It's just one after another. It's it's fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Pat, you've been a very successful coach in, in many sort of guises. What was it that attracted you to Bristol? You know, obviously, I was here 20 years ago. Loved my time at the Premiership with first year at Newcastle Falcons, and and then with uh, Northampton Saints. So I always knew one day, you know, I'd like to come back. But you know, I was mentored by Ian McGeekin. You know, uh, he's the one who got me into coaching, and uh, so I knew one day that I would come back. But what I learned from my time at the Blues, I got sacked in my last year. The Blues was the only job I never ever uh, had to interview for. It was my home team, I, and I was, I was very successful in Auckland. They offered me the job. So I never did an interview, and uh, so I never got the opportunity to say, what's your vision? What are you trying to achieve? And I never really got to say, this is what I do, and get real clarity. So I got into the job, and you think, it's here we go, and then there's a lot of things you see. Oh, my gosh, had no control over, which obviously affected the team. So I said, I'd never do that again. So um, then some other jobs came up, and I decided that I'll ask those questions, and um, Connick was fantastic. They, I, I was excited by that challenge. They were didn't really have much resources, but it's huge. I could see potential around community and growing it, and it was a huge highlight because when you don't have much resource, uh, budget-wise or, or facilities-wise, it was always going to come back to a true team effort, and that's what I love about rugby. Rugby is, is truly a team game. And I was happy, very happy in Galway. And then I got a call from Chris Boy and, and Bristol and, and Steve Lansdowne. 
and they were really keen for me to come over here and, and do what I did at Connacht. And I said straight up, watch the Vision first. And um, and they started to talk, and I could hear community, I could hear success. Um, I had a look, obviously, at Bristol, and I knew when we played Bristol, it, it's been sort of the last 10 years, maybe more, hasn't really been going well. So obviously something needed changing. So I was excited by that. And you quickly learn there was a, quite a few things to change. And I think the big thing is that Steve also, I was able to say to Steve and Chris uh, that I need to look after not only the game, but... You know, from my learnings, being in very successful teams and, and some very unsuccessful teams, uh, it's the game, the culture, and the leadership. So he gave me full full authority over those three main areas, which was, uh, made my mind up, I'll come. Pat, look, as a narrow loss against Northampton, your next game, Worcester at Six Ways, what will you be working on particular this week? Oh, without a doubt, defence. I mean, defence has been going really well for us. I know... I know that sounds funny after uh, two second half collapses, but we let in some some pretty soft tries and and there's some uncharacteristic mistakes. So we we we, we have a Sunday game, so the boys had a recovery day today. But certainly, what's what's lined up uh, the beauty about when you have a system, uh, whether it's attack or defence, is you can take the emotion out of it and um, and people can be accountable for for things they did really well. And then you also when when they don't do so well. Um, you know, it gives everyone clarity um, and understanding that we've got to work on these areas. And we were slow into shape, which meant that, you know, coming off the line, we didn't come off together. We missed tackles, probably the most tackles we've missed. And we've got to give, obviously give credit to, to Northampton, but we put ourselves in some, in some terrible positions, um, which made it put us under a lot of pressure. Pat, we've got to leave it there, but thanks for coming on the podcast and good luck with the rest of the season. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That's Pat Lamb, the Bristol Bears head coach. Just a quick wrap-up of the rest of the Premiership. 22 for Newcastle, 23 for Wasps. They're specialising in uh, narrow victories. Although they sit third in the table, to my mind, there is a gap between them and uh, the top two, uh, Saracens and Exeter. How much would it take for them to close that, if you accept there is one? I don't, I don't. Do you know what? I think they're, they're literally on on par. They're very level, and I think it's very. You know, they're going to make it obviously through to the top four, likely at the end of the season. Those two are just very much consistent sides. That's why they're so successful. You know, they don't make huge changes. They they rest key players when they need to, but at the same time, they pull it off when it matters. And one thing they do so well as well is they're able to execute in key areas of the field. And I think that's where you see certain teams tend to lack it. They give away penalties when, you know, in their in their um in the opposition twenty two when actually they should be probably at their best and be patient and be disciplined. Where Saracens and Exeter, uh, you know, they just know when to pull it off and, and get those tries when it actually matters. Well they have fewer fallow periods in games and I think one of the things that Dai Young always says is apparently when you when he's being interviewed from the touchline during games, he's always saying, look, we've done some things well, other things not. And they need to uh, simply, you know, make the periods when they're not doing well, you know, significantly fewer in games because that's actually what the difference is between them, uh, Saracens, Exeter. They simply play better for longer. Mm, That's actually a good point. I mean, you know, it is... When you look at Saracens um, and Exeter, one of the, another things that they do very well is their ability to, to to I guess close out games as well. So I think you just mentioned it with the whole they don't have many dips, they don't have many lack of concentration periods. So they're able to I guess play for eighty minutes rather than forty, and then switch off and then back on it for the next twenty minutes. They they just maintain that, and I think 
obviously what Di has already highlighted about Wasp, they, they have many moments where they just switch off. Well, I'd like to see the possession stats for all the teams because it seems to me that of all the teams in the Premiership, those two, the top two, can keep the ball significantly longer and are more patient than other teams. And if you turn the ball over, you're then looking at a prospect, you know, two or three minutes worth of solid defending. You're over multiple phases. Yeah, I mean, those teams, they're, they're brilliant at holding the ball. And any any game of rugby you play, if you can hold the ball for as long as possible, at some point the defence are, are going to break. There's going to be gaps. And if you can maintain it for at least two to three minutes over, whatever, 10 or 11 phases, uh, opportunities will open up. And that's where you put your likes of, let's say, with Saracens, your Liam Williams into space. And and he's get, he gets easy hat-trick tries you know, out on the far wing. So, yeah, it is about being able to hold your ball, being able to build up pressure. And then when, obviously, they haven't got the ball, they, they're able to defend and defend well. Well, time now to switch our focus because we're going to talk about the Guinness Pro 14 with the former Leinster and Ireland prop, Reggie Corrigan. Hello, Reggie. Oh, Brian, how are you? I'm okay. How are you, mate? I'm very well. Very well. Good mate. man. Now then, uh, given that Ulster were unbeaten till that moment, do, do you ever foresee a result of 64-7 to Munster? Absolutely not. There was no way I could have uh, foreseen that or anybody else for that matter. Either. Um, it was just an absolute whitewashing uh, of a game, but I, I think you have to put it in a little bit of perspective in that Ulster pretty much sent down a, a second string outfit mm-hmm. for that game, which which is annoying. I have to say, I don't like it. I hate the fact that some teams seem to forego certain games, um, and that seems to be what Ulster did in that one. But I did still think that their second string could put up a better performance than they did. So uh, brilliant performance by Munster, but up against a pretty haphazard Ulster outfit, it has to be said. But when you're talking about prioritising games or whatever the vernacular is they use and the excuse for doing this, I would have thought that, you know, given it was an all-island clash, you know, respective league positions, this is not one where you would want to do that. No, I mean, it's absolutely not. And, and I mean, I certainly feel that the interprovincials, uh, as we call them, uh, they warrant a lot more respect than that. Certainly... Uh, I know Leinster, when they went to Connacht on this occasion, put out their strongest team possible because they were given a bit of a lesson last year in the sports mm-hmm. It's not that they did, didn't put out a good team last year. They were just well and truly beaten last year, and that's just the way it was. But for that matter, they then put out the strongest team possible against Connacht, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Ulster certainly didn't do that. And, and I, I think it's disrespectful to their opposition, and I think it's disrespectful to the competition to do that. But they will argue that they had some injuries and they'll argue that players need to be rotated in a certain way. Um, and they'll also argue, and I think this part they could they could stand by, the players that did get the opportunity to play should have performed better and didn't. They were appalling and they let themselves and their province down. So there's that side of it too. But I, I still think you need to give these derbies more respect than that. In the last five years, I don't think there's been more than 12 points between these two sides in the corresponding fixtures uh, over the last period of time, if I'm not mistaken. So that'll give you an idea of how tight those games are normally. So this one was completely out of the blue and, you know, a bad a bad day at the office for Ulster. Well, a solid win for Leinster, not necessarily as straightforward as the uh, score suggests. They're now five points clear in their conference. And to me, at the moment at least, they look a gap apart. They are at that level... Um, Better than all the rest. There's no other way of putting it. Uh, their nearest rivals over here being Munster, of course. 
of Munster with still a little bit of work to do uh, in that regard because when you look across the squad that Leinster have across the board they've just got quality and, and oodles of it you know it just seems to be that they can pick any position and find a solid replacement and get the job done and that isn't the case with the other provinces it's quite simply a matter of fact I mean if you look at Munster for example they were suffering really badly at nine because Conor Murray was injured and we're not sure how long more he's going to be injured for it's a little bit of a mystery around that injury whether it's neck or shoulder but they just suffered there until this weekend where they managed to bring the all black Albie Matheson back and the difference he made was incredible uh, adding it to, to the back line for Munster and then obviously there was a lot of debate over here about Joey Carberry leaving Leinster and so will he, won't he, should he, shouldn't he? And he went and got to Munster and he was absolutely incredible at the weekend. So those two players have bolstered Munster's squad no end. But when you look at other positions around the pitch, let's say the back row, for example, they rely heavily on O'Mahony and Stander in that position and they wouldn't have the same quality to replace them. Whereas when you look at Leinster, it seems they just have oceans of talent ready to come in. I mean, Sean O'Brien was on the bench at the weekend, you know. I mean, that's the kind of talent they've got waiting in the wings to come in should somebody get injured, as happened at the weekend. you got Josh Van der Fleer coming back from injury and, play, and getting a man of the match performance for Leinster. Well, if you're looking outside Ireland for challenges, I suppose Glasgow would come to mind. But bearing in mind what we've said about Leinster, uh, are they realistic challenges? Outside of Ireland? Yes. Uh, for the, uh, the Cup, you mean, for the Champions Cup? Well, you know, in general, I mean, they've been there or thereabouts of Glasgow, but this season, although the results are still looking good, I don't quite think they've hit the straps as they have done previously. No, I mean, they're a very poor performance in South Africa, you know, in terms of, by their standards, what they'd expect. And, and, and you know, that, that showed them up a little bit. I think Glasgow are quality second leg, and I think Scarlet are in that, Spain as well, but I, I really don't think that there's too many squads out there that can that can just challenge Leinster when they put their mind to it. The problem for Leinster, I suppose, is uh, to keep that focus on the Pro 14 when number five star for the uh, European Cup is the big ambition, you know, so they have to really keep that focus, and I think for a number of seasons there, they kind of lost that focus a little bit with, with the, the domestic competition, and focused entirely on the, on the Premier competition and, and have done exceptionally well in that. But last year, you could really see that their focus was on proving that they're the best full stop, you know, whether no matter what competition they're in. And I think that's the, the, the new attitude that they have. So from a Leinster point of view, they have the squad and the players and the attitude to stay with that. Bringing in some new coaching staff like Felipe Contepome as well has really added to it. Um, so they're the ones to chase down and the ones to, to catch but they kind of, they're, they're a little bit unique in the way that they push themselves and the way they just want to win everything that they take part in, you know. Uh, even if it's, like if you boil it down to the way the attitude was for that game against Connacht, they were hurting from last year because they were taught a lesson by Connacht down there. And all the talk during the week, Johnny Sexton came out and said that they were humiliated in Connacht. So you don't hear that kind of chat too often. So uh, they felt humiliated by losing to a team like Connacht. So they went out and they picked their best team possible. Uh, Keane Healy said that they felt that Connacht were disrespectful to them last year because <laughs> Johnny Muldoon in his final season took a conversion. So there was all these little things that seemed to be subplots going on in that game. And in the end, they ran out pretty easy winners of that game. You know, Connacht mounted a bit of a challenge in the beginning, but 20 points to three is a convincing enough victory away from home. So... Uh, 
Yeah, they, even those small derby matches, they take seriously. So everything they partake in, they just want to give us more than 100% every time and prove that, you know, they're pretty much like the All Blacks. They're, they're the team you really want to try and beat. Reggie, you're going to leave it there, but thanks very much. Great as always. No problem, Brian. That's Reggie Corrigan, the former Leinster and Ireland prop. Just a, a, a general comment on the uh, Pro 14. This rotation, a bit like the bath thing, is not popular with a lot of people. It's not popular with fans who obviously don't know from week to week what sort of squad they're going to get for their ticket price. And yet, obviously, the rotation of players has hugely beneficial aspects when it comes to international. So how do they square that? I don't know, you know, it's quite interesting to listen to Reggie there talk a little bit about how it was very disrespectful for for Ulster to make that many changes and... You know, again, I, I come back to, I always think it's about the game and it's about the fans, the fans who pay the tickets. And I think if I'm coming to watch my team play and they've made this complete change and I know they're going to be absolutely beaten by a very fantastic side, it, it's actually a little bit disheartening, really. And I, I think it does disrespect the competition a little bit. At the same time, rugby's a business. It's about it's about, it's about winning the games when it matters and it's about ensuring that your players are, are fit for, for those games you know you can potentially win. But it is disappointing and I don't know how you how you stop it. You can't enforce a team to say you must play these players because the reality is a team has to rotate their players to make sure that they're winning the games they know they're capable of winning. Well, it does show how powerful central contracts are. It shows how uh, effective they are as well. But in the end... One of the things that Pro 14 are going to have to look at is no matter what you do in terms of bringing in different sides to give you different markets, if the product week to week is not good for TV, and that's where the majority of money always comes from, then you will always have a product which you can not charge absolute top whack for because broadcasters will simply say, unless you can guarantee that our televised games at least are going to be at full strength, then we're simply not going to pay full dollar. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, the Pro 14 is, is working really hard to try and uh, get those those crowds uh, and audiences to watch it. And at the moment, like you said, the scores between some of the games are, are quite uh, quite dramatic. And actually, there's not a lot of, not as many close games as you'd like to see. And I think games like that, like we saw Monster absolutely beating Ulster, doesn't help the help the competition and the, and the growth of uh, of the quality of rugby we, we want to see as fans. Well, let's move focus because the World Cup countdown is well and truly on 11 months and just 19 days. Joe Marla retired from international rugby, only 28. Look, I think it's not ideal for England because he is, in my opinion, probably the best scrummager, certainly at loose head. And whichever combination you play with him or Vinopolo or someone else, either starting or on the bench, it's a useful addition and now a mission from the squad and this sort of thing happening in your countdown along with other things like just having to get a new defence coach in who by the way isn't going to be here full time and a new attack coach this is not where I thought England would be uh, especially when they were carrying all before them in the first couple of years of Eddie Jones' reign. Yeah, I don't think any fan thought England would be in this state just under a year before the World Cup. It's almost quite funny because the last World Cup, England going into it, looked pretty strong. Obviously, there was interesting additions with Sam Burgess and so on. And obviously, they didn't perform at their very best. And then you kind of look at the England squad now 
and it's it's just slowly breaking away uh, around Eddie. And you, I mean, I've got faith in the team. I've got faith in Eddie. I've got faith that the potential will will pull it together over the autumn internationals, and then you know build up momentum ready for the World Cup. Because for me, the way it works in World Cups. You've got to peak at the right time. You know, it's great you can win all your autumn internationals now, but actually it's all about building yourself. So during the Six Nations, we expect them to start putting in a very good performance, getting their combinations right, ready for that World Cup, because, you know, 11 months is is actually quite a long time and you do not want to peak too early because teams like New Zealand, they save it at the right time and that's when they pull out World Cup wins. Well, you either vertently or inadvertently hit on uh, one of the things which, for me, is absolutely crucial, and that is the combinations and your position as well, and you're eminently qualified to comment on this, England's back row has been unbalanced for quite a long time. The effects of that are quite apparent as well, particularly given the wider team problems that England had exposed uh, in the last few games at the breakdown. If they don't get that right, anything they do elsewhere is going to be undermined, at least to a certain extent. For me... You're getting to the position, and I believe Eddie Jones has to do this at some point. He has to simply take his pick with whatever combination he has and say, right, barring injury or something else in extremis, these are the three, and these are going to be given enough games to be as effective as they can be, irrespective of whether they are the best three that you could posit in terms of pure rugby ability. You're spot on, Brian. I think the... the struggle that Eddie has had with the England side, uh, their back row, it's been, it's almost been inconsistent. He's changed it several times due to mainly injuries, but the best back row, so so we look at the holy trinity of the England back row in 2003 that won the World Cup. You you look at those three, they had been together for such a long time, you know, Hill, Delalio and back. They know how to play alongside each other. So a back row has to have a good unit, have to have a good balance. And if you keep chopping and changing it, it's really hard to get that consistency. And I think that's where England has really had problems around around the breakdown because, you know, is a seven in, is a seven out, is a six going in after? And, and, and when you play in the back row, you've got to almost know where each other are going to be on the field to decide when you're going to commit to breakdowns. When is that the key out. thing? Is I think for me, it's all about understanding each other. So if I look at the back rows that I've played in, best back rows that I've played in, you know, I, I played alongside Heather Fisher. She's a brilliant um, flanker. And she knew when I was going to be in certain breakdowns and when she knew uh, when to hang out and commit to a ne- the next breakdown whilst I waited uh, for the for the one after that. And then you have an eight who pretty much just works in between. So you're Sarah Hunter for me. And that actually works. I think we just you've got to know each other. At the moment, like I said, with the England back row, it's changed so many times. Uh, we just need to see consistency, and I hope they get that during the Autumn Internationals. Well, one of the other areas, apart from back row and centre, which have been uh, long-running conundrums since before Eddie Jones got here, the back three is not necessarily settled with players playing out of position and so on. But one of the players who doesn't seem to feature at all on Eddie Jones' radar is Alex Good. Now, but when you're talking about what he does or doesn't need to do, he, um, he was saying to Gavin Mayers, our Telegraph colleague, that he spoke to Eddie Jones last in December of 2016 when he didn't say too much. He said he just said, I wasn't in the squad. He didn't think I was playing at a good enough level, really. And uh, we had a chat and that was that. Now, bearing in mind, look, Good has never been a player with out-and-out pace. He's 
not of any particular size, and yet he is all, nearly always very effective because he's a very intelligent footballer. Witness the fact that he can not only play at 15, but he can play at fly-half if needed. And he always links well, he communicates well, and makes players around him look better. So if you can afford to do that, what else can he do? Do you know what? I think the reason why Alex Goode is playing some great rugby is because he hasn't got the pressure of playing for England. I think in that article it highlighted the fact that he's loving, enjoyed the fact that he's had two full pre-seasons. So he's had the opportunity to really get fit, to look after his body, and he's been working on his speed as well. And you can see that the way he plays, he's he finds gaps and um, he gets through them where most other players will slow down into contact. He, you know, he accelerates. And he sets players up. Like you said, he, he makes other players around him look good. Um, he, he's a player at the moment, I do feel, if he did get a look in, into the England side, you might not see the best of him because I think he plays with no pressure at the moment. He's enjoying his rugby. He's loving playing alongside Liam Williams. You can see the combinations at the moment between him um, and Williams. You almost wouldn't want to put him under pressure with the with the stress of knowing that he has to make a selected side for, for England. Just let him play good rugby, and that's what we're getting from him at the moment. Well, I'm sure he'd probably disagree if he wanted <laughs> to get a cap. But all the more reason, you know, when you're talking uh, about Eddie Jones's selection criteria, and one of the things that he's always said is that he is uh, has always has a mind to look at players on form, then who else is it on better form? I, I can't put anyone else in that in that fullback position who I'd say who isn't playing outstanding rugby and who's been consistent from week to week. Alex Good has really pretty much done that. Obviously, we always uh, look at Mike Brown and what he's doing for Harlequins, but Alex Good has been consistent. He's just I, you almost feel he's just underrated. Mm. He's underrated, and people don't really appreciate the talent that he produces and what he does for other players around him. And that's what I think a really good 15 does. For me, it's almost they set up the opportunities for those around them to really play at their very best. Well, time to switch completely to the women's game, which obviously I'm very pleased you're here to comment about. How do you think the uh, the new setup, well, it's only a year in now, uh, what effects do you think the uh, sponsorship from Tyrrells and the prominence with which the women's game is now being given by the wider game. How, how do you think that's working? It's working really well. You know, the investment from the RFU, like I said, a title sponsor with Tyrrells, has made a big difference. It's given the, the competition a bit of presence now. You see the games a lot more closer. First year, obviously, Saracens um, dominated and had a close match in the final against Harlequins. But what's great is that you're starting to see at the moment just talented athletes coming through the system as well. See Jess Breach for for Harlequins. That's what we want to see. We want to see almost a foundation of players who can come through who potentially could all play for England. Because I guess what we had previously was we had some talented players playing for England, but we didn't have the depth. Now I think this tournament is creating depth for the England side because look, end of the day, the England team want to win the World Cup in uh, in 2021. So if they're going to do that, they need more players coming through. I'll tell you what um, is starting to happen, and the rest of the league will not be happy about this, both men and women, is Saracens again, you know, starting to show the little bit of a gap. Even at this early stage, you're starting to see them being more consistent than other teams. And you must, you must be thoroughly sick of it if you're not part of the Saracens setup. But I do know that they work very closely with... Uh, the academy and the uh, full setup. How how much of an advantage is that? 
I think having a, a good relationship with the men's setup is is so key. That makes such a difference because it helps highlight okay what are, what are you guys doing with the men's side and what can we learn from what you're doing and and how can we develop our game you know get another pair of eyes on the way we're playing it, it really does change the style of 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 the, our game really and with Saracens what's been great is that they've just built on um their performance from last year you know winning uh, the the Tyrrell prem was was great but it's actually how do you kick on and the Saracens women's side they've changed their coach as well their their head coach previously Rob Kane has gone now to coach the USA women's side and the the new coach is Alex Osterbury really good guy knows his stuff and he's brought his new style of rugby to to the team and they've also got some players who were previously in the England sevens women's side who are now not in the England sevens side but have come back to play for Saracens so uh, Saracens have got this real attacking presence not just with their forwards because they've got the likes of Marley Packer and Poppy Cleo and uh, Bryony Cleo but now they've got a really good back line which can also cause a lot of havoc. Uh, Loughborough 41-40 victors over Gloucester Heartbreak. Um, when everything was announced and you had uh, just down the road you had Litchfield who have traditionally provided a lot and then Loughborough who are reasonably close by there's still contention there isn't there's still not necessarily bad blood, but a certain, certainly rivalry. How impressed have you been with the way that Loughborough have gone about things? I've been very impressed by Loughborough. I knew that they were always going to be, um, be in contention with being in the top four because they have brought in some key signings. Katie Daly-McLean, who's the current England number 10. Um, Justine Lucas, who's a tight head prop, used to play at WAS so, and also plays for England as well. So they've got some really strong, uh, experienced individuals who have come to the side now who have just added a little bit extra to what Loughborough create. Because Loughborough have always had some really good forwards. Now they've got a, a 10 who can who can unleash the, the quality in their back line. And I've been impressed with the way Loughborough have worked. They know how to close out games because players like Katie McLean are so experienced at different I guess different pressure situations that she's she's quite confident to deal with anything that she's faced with, and again they they won against Gloucester, which was the last minute thing, and and it just shows the quality of Loughborough. I think they're a side that potentially could make it to the final, uh, and I, it could be who knows it could be a Saracens Loughborough final, but you can never count out the likes of Wasps and Harlequins as well. Well, one of the things that happened uh, last season in the women's game that doesn't happen at all really in the men's game is there were really wholesale movements of players from different clubs. Have we seen the last of that or is that going to continue? Do you know what's funny? In the women's game, there's always movement, but because we've never had the profile, it never gets talked about. Because players, I guess they're not necessarily fixed by contracts at a club. They just move because ideally, sometimes it's a location thing or job usually makes them move. But what's been great, we've, we've been able to document the, the quality of the moves. So to see Katie Daly-McLean, who was currently, or who was previously, sorry, playing at a DMP, Darton Moden Park, uh, now go to, to Loughborough, that's quite an interesting story. Mm. And actually it's changed the way Loughborough are playing. And then seeing the likes of Wasp, Wasp have had a quite a few good signings with Amy Wilson-Hardy, who was previously in the England 7 setup, is now um, not in it as well. Katie Mason is, uh, is another good player. And Claire Malloy, who used to play at Bristol and is an island number seven. So she's come to add a bit more extra to the way Wasp play. So it's been great to actually talk about this because we've never talked about this previously. And now it's making the competition much more interesting because you're seeing players go, well, actually, I want to I want to play for Harlequins. And now they play for Harlequins and they, they improve the, the level of standard there. Just a final question. How much for Philip is it for 
the uh, women to see themselves live on TV. It's brilliant. You know, Brian, you know, it's like playing, playing in front of the cameras. It, it, it steps up your level of standard, but also it's just nice to know that finally the game is getting the level of um, coverage that it deserves because the games are really close. I had the privilege to be able to be a pundit for it was Wasp Women versus Loughborough on the telly, and that was a really good game. It went down to what the last five, ten minutes before you saw a real Loughborough pull away, but that, that just showed the quality of club rugby because it's always been international rugby that we've seen, but now I think people who don't watch a lot of women's rugby are starting to see some of the, the domestic games and now also starting to follow players because previously you can only watch Six Nations games or the odd international game on TV and you don't really see the, the narrative or understand the key players coming through. If you're watching domestic rugby, you can actually keep an eye on some of those good players and, and go, wow, I recognise them and now they play for England. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to my co-host, Maggie Alfonsi. Is it OBE? MBE, but MBE. I should have an oh, OBE get, or Dame. Don't worry, you'll get, you'll, get, you'll get there. Dame, absolutely definitely. To my usual producer, Abby Patterson, thank you very much. Thank you to you for listening. Make sure that you download the podcast, and that way you will never miss an episode. And after all, it's completely free. And please feel free to leave a review because that helps other people find us as well. That's all for now. Thank you very much to The Telegraph and to Remy Martin. Good night. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 